wrapped up. Uh, we're going to bring you uh, Fiona York, uh, the coordinator of Carnegie Community Action Project, to walk us through what happened in as the uh, decampment took place at Crab Park yesterday. Fiona, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jody. Really glad to have you here. So what is your perspective on what happened in the early morning hours yesterday and throughout the day in, I guess, the Port Authority parking lot adjacent to Crab Park? Well, what happened was really um, what I consider a moral travesty with the way that the police um, descended on that parking lot and the way that they operated, the way they undertook the operations yesterday. Um, So we knew that there was, um, obviously there was a court case and the injunction was granted last Wednesday. We are aware that there was a 72-hour notice um, and we had actually been in some dialogue uh, with uh, our contacts um, in the VPD and um, we had asked for uh, communication and uh, more notice, uh, numerous uh, suggestions of how to make that uh, decampment process more peaceful and less traumatizing and less triggering for residents of the park. Um, and also in recognition of the fact that people simply had nowhere to go. So the um, potential was that people were going to be decamped to nowhere, which is actually what ended up taking place. Um, so there was uh, there was the opportunity for the police to show some leadership and to um, respect the, the issue around housing and that people really had nowhere to go, those who were in the park, um, by, for example, delaying the process and providing more opportunity for negotiations with BC Housing, with housing providers, uh, with the province, with the city, in order to provide a more peaceful and more uh, ethical solution to the issue. Um, some of the suggestions that we came up with was that the city could actually, or the province could actually lease that parking lot that we were on from the uh, Port of Authority because the there is recognition or there should be recognition that there simply is not enough housing. The housing that was offered to those in Oppenheimer Park was a very small percentage of those who are actually homeless and in need of secure and stable housing. We had a very peaceful community of over 125 people who are staying in Crab Park that were in need of housing. Again, that was just a small percentage of those who are vulnerable and in need. Um, so one, one thing, one idea the city has floated in the past is opening respite centres for people, outdoor respite centres for people who are in need and uh, don't have housing. So that, that um, community and craft park could actually have been that respite centre. It was a perfect example of a community-led, peer-run, peaceful community where people felt like family, were safe and secure, were socially distanced, um, were meeting pandemic protocols had a sacred fire in order to provide that grounding and guidance for those that were there, uh, was in solidarity with, with groups and had community and supporters and could have been that, that respite centre, at least for the duration of the pandemic, if not longer. So basically looking for opportunities to find better solutions for people that were there, um, those solutions were not respected or followed up by the police. Instead, they opted to descend on the park at 6 a.m. yesterday en masse in a very triggering and traumatic fashion and we're not open to any dialogue or any concessions about um, making the uh, the whole process more peaceful for people you know what fiona you articulate yourself so beautifully you've laid that out have you had communication with the city because putting putting this on the vpd seems unfair given the fact that the bc supreme court has granted an injunction as of last wednesday with a 72-hour window to clear that space so some might argue that the vpd are simply doing their job they're hired to enforce what the bc supreme court lays out there but how you articulated the need 
and the want to find better solutions for people who really need that sense of community. We've talked about it many times here on the program and, and even sort of reflected down to places uh, there's in San Diego and outside of San Francisco, there are like permanent tent cities that are being set up with proper sanitation, especially now given the pandemic. Um, others would argue, well, that's the Port Authority's uh, land and there were break and enters that were involved with this. There are, like, there are definitely two sides to this story. So my question to you is, have you had a dialogue with the mayor of Vancouver? On this. We tried. We tried to bring in as many of the government actors and authorities as we possibly could. There was very limited time, as you know. Um, so we've been in um, certainly since uh, we were uh, people were at Oppenheimer Park. There have been numerous dialogues with the city um, and uh, attempts to have that communication. Um, have been in touch with the city councilors, with the the city, um, bringing forward motions, uh, requests. Uh, there was actually uh, some lobbying that was done towards the city to try to, to provide a peaceful solution that could have included leasing the lot, as I suggested. Um, so certainly every angle, every opportunity that could have been uh, looked at, we we tried, supporters tried our, our best to dialogue with all of those different parties, with BC have Housing, just... the city and the oh, province. Sorry. The BC Housing piece, like with being in a pandemic and some of the the actions being taken, um, giving people the opportunity to um, occupy hotel rooms with support staff in place and, and people to be there and, and still keeping that sense of community, not asking people to go into shelters where you need to leave your your possessions outside. Um, these are all things that that need to be talked through. Is there something, is there middle to be found that doesn't involve uh, a camp in a park or a parking lot or on public or private property in Vancouver? Is there a way to house? Will these people take the housing if if offered to them? Because even when Oppenheimer Park was, quote unquote, decamped, not a fan of that word myself, it sounds inhuman. Um, but when when people were given opportunities, there was a core group that said, no, we don't want a place. We're going to camp right here. This is what we're doing. And and staunchly defiant in that. Does that exist at the Crab Park camp prior to everybody being removed? First, I would say that there is a lot of stigma that is leveled at people who are staying in the park. Um, I would argue that that is not necessarily the case, that there are simply people who refuse the housing. I know that's something that is circulated in media. There is a stigmatizing factor to that when when that is repeated. Um, I would say that that's why I'm asking you, though, as opposed to circulating it in the media. I'm actually asking you if that's true. Is it true? I would I would say that people are experts in their own needs in terms of housing and what they're requiring. So um, if housing was declined, it was because people uh, were saying that they were uh, isolated because there's guest policies that didn't allow them to bring their partners, for example. There was numerous people in that situation or weren't allowed to bring their companion an- animal. And that's uh, where a fair argument. Very... I, think, I think you make a good point with that. I, and I have was, two dogs. Uh, I wouldn't leave my dogs behind. Exactly. And there was yeah, very, no, uh, some of them yeah. had, a, had a, a lot of security. People couldn't bring in their own uh, meals or food. Um, so with some of the housing that was offered, it simply was not suitable. Some people are not able to take shelters because they're, it's infested with bugs, they're violent, it's too crowded. So people have numerous reasons. And I interviewed a lot of people when we were preparing for our court case, and I heard numerous reasons, but there were patterns. So you could see that people are experiencing a lot of the same things, and they had very valid reasons why they why certain uh, housing or shelters were not acceptable. And in a right. Supreme Court case, I think it was the um, Abbotsford case, they, um, there was talk about what's considered ad, uh, accessible housing, which doesn't mean 
physically accessible, but accessible in all of those ways that it does allow for people to have their pets and their partners and have their needs met in a proper way. And people should have that opportunity. Um, In terms of uh, what could be offered, we're seeing that in other cities, for example, London, Ontario recently allowed an encampment to stay in place and made a a decision through the city to allow the encampment to stay in place, respecting that it was the best uh, possible opportunity in the absence of housing for people to stay and that dispersing people and scattering them was actually going to make things worse. Um, there are directives from the World Health Organization, the CDC, uh, even Dr. Bonnie Henry has weighed in on the fact that an open air encampment could be safer than a shelter. And the right. CDC has issued had issued a directive saying that if there is no housing, people are actually safer in an encampment and it should be allowed to stand in place. Um, so that would that's a sort of second comment to that question. And then thirdly, in terms of options, um, in the very short term, we know that there are other hotels that are vacant in the city. Not all of them have been used for housing for people. So we know that those options exist. The city and the province could use their powers to uh, to um, access those those uh, hotels and use them as well, and they are not doing that. So there is a, it's a political will issue. They use mm-hmm. some, and those are full. Those ones that were offered to Oppenheimer Park residents. I know that there were former residents of Oppenheimer Park who were at Crab Park, and we did try to connect them with those housing providers to see if there was any the hotel rooms remaining, and they were not. They were all gone. Um, but we know there's other hotels that are vacant, and so those could have been offered. And that's a very short-term, very minimum, minimal effort to provide housing, not even speaking to the need for longer-term permanent housing. Um, but yes. those, those uh, opportunities were not availed. Well, Fiona, you make great points here, and hopefully somebody listening will be in touch with you at the Carnegie Community Action Project to make some thing happen for the people are most vulnerable, certainly during a pandemic. And we really do appreciate you articulating your perspective so concisely. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, Jody. That's Fiona York, again, the coordinator at Carnegie Community Action Project. We need to come together and resolve the issue of people having no place to go and living in encampments and on the streets. Jody Vance in for Jill today. Certainly a red hot topic in Surrey this week is the projected $40 million plus budget deficit in that city thanks to COVID-19. And now we've been breaking down what will be cut to try and pop that ballooning debt. Global Radio senior reporter Janet Brown has been breaking stories almost hourly for days out of Surrey City Hall. And Janet taking some time to join us now with yet another update. Hi there. Good afternoon, Jody. Yeah, lots of cuts and lots of cuts across all municipalities in Metro Vancouver uh, as municipalities stared down deficits because of COVID-19. And here in Surrey, they are looking at a deficit of anywhere between 39 and $42 million. And our listeners know that we've been reporting for the last couple of days all sorts of cuts that are coming to the city, not opening rec centres until possibly early September, maybe later, a number of parks projects on Holden Newton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of councillors on Surrey City Council are upset that while these cuts are being made, there are no cuts being made to the Surrey police transition from the RCMP to a civic force. And on Monday night at the virtual council meeting, Councillor Jack Hundile tweeted that the mayor said to council on Monday night, quote, the provincial government gave him a secret letter 
saying there was an order in council establishing the Surrey Police Department. And that tweet caught my attention. I, I checked with Mr. Hundile. He says the comments were made at the very end of the council meeting, and the audio is still online on the city website. And I thought, gosh, what have I missed here? Have I missed something? So I reached out to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, who, of course, is the province's top cop, and he's the guy that will be responsible for approving the transition to a civic police force from the RCMP to ask him, Hey, is what the mayor of Surrey apparently said at council meeting on Monday night true? Have I missed something here? Mr. Farnworth's response is no, it is not true. There is not an order in council establishing the Surrey Police Department. But what he did tell me is that the process continues of setting up a police board. The interviews continue. The vetting of the applications continue. And he hopes to have a police board in place sometime in the summer. Here is what Mr. Farnworth had to tell me, Jody. Uh, there's no order uh, in council. Um, what is taking place is, as I publicly announced earlier, that we are moving to set up a police board, uh, and that requires um, me to go through uh, people who've applied to be on the police board, uh, and that gets uh, whittled down. There have been interviews for potential candidates for a police board. Um, I have to make a final decision on who would be on the board. Once that's done, then an ordering council would be prepared that would go to cabinet for approval. Um, and at this point, I haven't made a final decision on who the, uh, the individuals would be that are, are going to be appointed to a police board. I expect to do that soon. But until that's done, there's no ordering council that would be going to cabinet for approval. And even then, uh, all orderings in council, once they're passed by a cabinet, are in fact made public. So when do you see the formation of the police board being intact and ready to roll forward? Well, as I said, I'm doing the, uh, we've been doing the interviews. Um, I've been assessing uh, candidates, and I think we're getting close. Uh, but uh, it would certainly be, my guess is, in the next, uh, in the next few weeks, I hope to have uh, a list uh, finalized uh, to be able to then take an order in council to cabinet. But at this point, uh, that's not yet happened. I, I know there's been a lot of issues uh, in Surrey. What I'm ensuring is that the process uh, that takes place, uh, particularly in regards to the formation uh, of a police board, is done uh, in the appropriate steps, in the appropriate manner, and uh, that's what I'm focused on. Well, Janet, that just seems like, um, for me, listening to that, uh, from the outside looking in, it's like, why are we doing this during a pandemic? Why? And listening to the Linda Steele show uh, last week, late last week, uh, callers were uh, up to their eyeballs in frustration in Surrey on this very topic. What are you hearing outside of, of City Council, well, as well as inside City Council, with regard to this, you know, just plowing ahead with the transition to the police force, given the fact that, 60% of the RCMP would probably shift over to the police force, even at this massive cost. Well, just as you say, Jody, uh, there is no change. Um, it's full steam ahead, as Mr. Farnworth says. There's no change in that unless uh, the, the province receives some direction from Surrey City Council, which they have not. Um, as Mr. Farnworth says, the board will be established. He's aiming for the summer and the chair of the police board will be the mayor, as is the case with every municipal police board in the region that is formed. And the city also has one additional appointee to that board as well. The rest of the positions, I believe up to nine in total, could uh, will be made by the province. 
And so um, it is what it is. A lot of counselors, yeah. as I say, upset that cut, cuts aren't being made to this transition process. But the majority on council are happy that it is moving ahead. And we'll see what happens. And we'll see who's sitting on that police board. And they will be the ones that will choose the new chief of police for the city of Surrey. It is going to keep you very busy. We appreciate all your hard work, Janet. Thank you for taking some time out for the show today. My pleasure. As always, Jody. thank you. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill. That in this together sort of vibe when it came to politics, it's starting to chip away. Even in a pandemic, elected officials are politicking really hard all of a sudden. Never a shortage of things to unpack, it seems. And certainly my next guest enjoys taking the spin out of the press releases and weekly briefings from City Hall that, that tend to say a lot about what other levels of government must do at least Vancouver City Hall, former longtime Vancouver City Councillor and my co-host on Unspun Podcast at theorca.ca. Joining us on the line is none other than George Affleck. Hi, George. Hey, Jordy. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Um, so much to discuss over the next few minutes. Let's start with, because you and I going back and forth, you said, we can talk about that viaduct fiasco. I want you to break that down <laughs> for me. What, what made it a fiasco? Well, I, I think it's—I wouldn't say fiasco. I think that the what was interesting was uh, well, they chose a very challenging spot to have a protest. I, I just thought the response from the mayor was milk toast. There wasn't any response really. He, his, their, their requests are very specific. You know, we went through a whole process when I was there related to the viaducts, related to uh, Hogan's Alley, and all of that stuff. And it's very clear in the report the plan and what what we want to do moving forward. And I think he could have expressed some um, movement on that front and specifically trying to find a way to address the Hogan's Alley issue in a more public way, saying, how to, is there a way to fast track that portion uh, or portions of the Hogan's Alley? And I think that would have alleviated a lot of the stress and a lot of the arguments that some of those protesters had on that bridge and, and on the viaduct. So I, I think it was just another letdown from, from the mayor uh, in that protest. Okay, so what are your uh, thoughts on how things went down at Crab Park? You've had very vocal opinions about how long and um, entrenched the Oppenheimer Park camp was able to get. What are your thoughts on Crab Park and how it was dismantled yesterday? Well, and this has been touched on a bit. It's kind of like whack-a-mole a little bit. These police protesters, uh, which they're not... You know, there a lot of them aren't homeless. They they are they are protesting uh, an issue which is related to homelessness and housing, uh, and they are they were at Oppenheimer and then they moved to Crab Park. Uh, the the port has the ability to move quicker potentially than the park board did with relating to getting those people out of there. They arrested and I think it was 41 people. It showed you the difference in in management when you have a a, a park area overseen and a parking lot in this case overseen by a federal agency and their ability and willingness to move quicker than the park board was at Oppenheimer, which went on for over a year. Uh, but now those people have moved over to uh, Strathcona, and they're building up their, their tent city over there to continue their protest. So they keep moving around, uh, and they will continue to do that until, I mean, I don't know. I think that the city, as we all know, the mayor keeps passing the buck, saying it's the federal, it's the provincial governments, you know, I can't. And, of course, that's true, but these protests are in Vancouver all the time. He's the mayor of Vancouver. Uh, and I think that there has to be, and along with the park board, uh, a more, uh, you know, I don't know what the, you know, the, the process, you have to diffuse the situation in some way, whether you go hard, like the, like the port did, or you decide that this is just the way we're going to live and we're going to have a tent city like this uh, always and, and facilitate that. So which is it? Are we, are we going to be like the port and, and, and with the police and go in and get them out and arrest 40 people? 
or are we going to let them build out their tent city and expand it and expand it? And I would imagine that's what's going to happen now again in Strathcona at the park there along Venables. You'll see that, that tent city grow to the Oppenheimer Park level just like because the park board is unwilling to do anything about it. And just to reiterate, in case uh, our listener isn't aware, that the Vancouver police officers did move in to clear that tent city at Crab Park based on the B.C. Supreme Court injunction that was granted last Wednesday. There was a 72-hour window uh, to clear the space. We spoke with Fiona York uh, of the Carnegie Community Action Project, and she was really firm in that the the people who were gathered at Crab Park or at the Port Authority parking lot adjacent to Crab Park um, really didn't have any place to go and that when she tried to reach out to various levels of government she was rather non-specific on who exactly but said it was sort of you know it's a media spin she called it or, or the media is perpetuating the the idea that these are protesters could it be possible that that these are just people who aren't prepared to go into a shelter and leave behind, say, their dog or their or their personal um, items, or they don't want to live in a hotel, that they just simply want to keep that level of community. Do we have that in us as a city to create a permanent, um, safe and, and clean tent environment as they've built in, in San Diego and outside of San Francisco trying to deal with the homelessness issue? Because it seems like what we've done till now, George, has not been working. As you said, it is more like pop up over here, take that down. And now going over to a park at Strathcona, it's back in the hands of the park board. So what happens now? Well, I, I don't necessarily agree with her. I think that the police and, and Vancouver city staff who've gone in there and, and, and the people who are facilitating uh, finding homes for these people that build out these tent cities um, have been, they've been clear that they've refused, a significant number of them have refused housing and, and that has been reported uh, and, and we know that. But I do think that without a doubt, this is a protest and there are people that mm. for sure will need, we know that homelessness is an issue. I think the challenge is, uh, is this the right way for you to find a home? Does this mean that every time somebody builds, a, build, a tent city builds out, then a bunch of people rush there and go, great, I got, if I go and, and put a tent up for a few months or six months, I'll get a, I'll get a new place to live, and I'm from wherever. Uh, it's not the best process. Do you get to jump the queue if you do that? There are people all over the city waiting for co-ops, waiting for social housing, waiting for all sorts of kinds of housing. Uh, by setting up a tent, does that allow people to jump the queue, not only in Vancouver, but across the region and potentially country? I think that, that's the question you have to ask as we let these tent cities grow. What is the goal here? Is it a protest or is it a, a need for housing or is it a mixture? Um, but I think without a doubt, we have. To, I think that there's a, a need to kind of diffuse that uh, tent city growth in these parks because that's not what parks are for. Whether we build a permanent tent, tent city I don't know, but I think the, the, the need of that is insatiable. So I think that there has to be a larger discussion about homelessness. And I've talked about this before on your show. And on, on, uh, this is a big issue. And, I, and on this, I agree with the mayor, but I don't mean it to, it's not about passing the buck. If the mayor really wants to do something, hold a summit, a national summit about, if not an international summit, or some kind of a discussion about homelessness. And why do we have homelessness? What decisions were made 20 years ago, which we know uh, impacted homelessness? It's related to... Uh, you know, the facilities related to, uh, you know, institutionalization, deinstitutionalization, all those things had an impact on the pro on what where we are today. How do we fix that uh, as a country uh, and as a province and as a city? That's what has to be discussed. And that's what's not getting discussed. Everybody just keeps moving around. The money keeps moving around. Every 
10 cities keep popping up. That's not the solution. We have to get to the nub of the issue and figure this out. Yeah, no more Band-Aids and a real solid plan And just to start somewhere, I think there's an insatiable appetite for that. We're going to pause here momentarily with George Affleck, former Vancouver City Councillor, and on the other side, we will talk more about the big park board meeting that is going down tomorrow night about Stanley Park. Got uh, opinions about Stanley Park? We're going to open up the phone. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. I wrote a column for the Orca. It came out this morning. It's about Stanley Park. If you don't know sort of the drama that is happening around the park board in Stanley Park, mid-pandemic, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Oh, it's just so confusing. Have a read at theorca.ca. George, I wanted to get your take on what you're seeing unfold with regard to this sort of mid-pandemic plan for Stanley Park that might be permanent. What what is actually happening here? (laughs) Well, I think John Cooper and Trisha Barker have been very clear uh, on their, how they've tried to communicate this. And, and they've, they've avoided the issue of this is not about bike versus car. This is about accessibility. It's about democracy. It's about pr- pro- process. Uh, what's happening is this park board, this majority park board, which is Green and, and Cope, which you seem to be aligned now, not only at park board, but also at uh, city council with all their decision making, seem they seem to be a park board to be against any kind of pr- process, which reminds me a lot of vision, which is what was vision's undoing in the, in the last uh, term uh, that they were in power. I think that, you know, the basic decision is, is to keep it, is to have a process. Yes. About the, about the closing of the roads or potential closing of the roads, but they're not going to open the roads, which was decided by staff, not politically, not in any process because of COVID they decided to close the park to cars uh, for, for potentially a good reason, but without any process. Uh, they have decided now that the decision now will be to keep the roads closed until they build a separated bike lane. Um, I think that is, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's a, it's a, there's no process. And I think that the decision to keep it closed is unfair, as John and uh, Trisha have mentioned, to the businesses, to people who want to, who have uh, challenging uh, needs from accessibility, uh, obviously the aquarium when it reopens, um, all these are yeah. you know, the horse-drawn carriages, all these things. Uh, are challenged. I don't understand why uh, people are trying to make this a bike car debate. It's not. It's about democracy. It's about process. It's about fairness. And that's not happening. And they can shout and scream saying, oh, but people want this to be closed. Well, there's no proof to that. And there's no no process to show that. So we need a process before they close the park like they have. And, and, and for the long term, it's, it seems for now. And that is sort of where my op-ed came from in terms of the process piece. I love I love biking. I have many bikes in our family. We we love to get out and and ride and we we also liked calmed areas to in order to ride bikes. This isn't bikes versus cars. This is if everybody wants this, then do the public consultation and show the 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 democratic way of of putting this forward rather than you know what we're going to just go ahead with the changes that we're proposing here and we'll do the process later we'll do that we'll ask you all about it later and i got a, i got a note actually uh, jody at cknw.com from david and and he gave quite an email here but uh, one excerpt is the details are less important than the secretive and undemocratic manner by which they have sprung this plan on the public public with very little time to receive public input. And you know what? We have opened the phone lines here, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. I know, George, you love taking calls. So let's go. Paul in Vancouver, welcome to the show. Your thoughts on Stanley Park, the mid-pandemic plans for a post-pandemic Stanley Park. I think it's ridiculous. 
I'm a senior who lives in Vancouver. I cannot walk to the park. I cannot ride my bike to the park. If my caregiver can't drive me to the park, I'm excluded from the park. I've been excluded from the park for months now. And there's no due process uh, being offered by the parks board. They have, they are pushing their social engineering. They don't want any cars in the park. It's obvious. So, there should be public consultation on this. They Paul, can I ask you a question? Uh, can I ask you a question? Because the pushback yes. I've gotten, because my dad has Alzheimer's, I would love to take him to Stanley Park mm. and just go for a drive around the park. Uh, can't. Uh, they're like, well, you can you can go to a hub and get on a bus and take the bus around the park because there'll be an electric oh, bus Oh, give available. me a break. Right. Give me a break. A person with disabilities, what, what they're going to drive where? to Georgia, near the entrance to the park, park their car, get off, wait for a bus to show up, stumble onto the bus with their disability, get dropped off somewhere in the park, then have to wait again for a bus to show up. That's discriminatory against people with disabilities. And I'm fed up with this parks board. They should be listening to... All citizens of Vancouver. You're right. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate that phone call. You know what, George? That's the overwhelming response and certainly one that uh, Trisha Barker was putting forward. People were attacking Trisha on social media, not realizing that she works with senior citizens and people with disabilities and actually people in palliative care. Like this is one of the kindest people you've ever seen. And there's been sort of this bully mob mentality attacking her on social media. It's just been wild. Well, and, you know, the, one of the things that hasn't been discussed a lot is the relationship with the city. As people may or may not know, Park Board is an independent, you know, government that oversees the parks in Vancouver. Very unique situation. But there's the city of Vancouver. A lot of this route is on city streets. And also the impact of no parking and no access to the park means cars are driving around the West End, which perturbs the neighbors in the West End and other areas in Coal Harbor and all these other areas. Because So there no, there's no management strategy from city of Vancouver that I can see uh, in Parkport. So that relationship hasn't been clarified. Uh, we don't know what the city's intention is for, for example, Beach Avenue, which right now is closed. Are they intending to close that street? That's a big chunk of this route uh, and an mm-hmm. important part of it if, you, if you're in it. So what is, the, what is going on here? There's absolutely zero information that we are getting, uh, but decisions are being made. It's the opposite of fact-based decision-making. It's completely compulsive, uh, uh, you know, uh, politically charged uh, decision-making, and that's not cool. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill This Week. And you know what? We had so many calls coming in on our phone board that in the second half of this half hour, we are reopening the phones about Stanley Park. Are, Are you feeling that it should be reopened to vehicle traffic or do you want one lane shut down and be a designated bike lane even without public consultation? Uh, Just get it done. Both sides are welcome to chime in here. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. 604-280-9898. But up first, we're going to talk about something that is definitely reopened to the public. The White Rock Pier opened this morning. Happy to welcome Scott Christensen, the White Rock Deputy Mayor and Councillor, to the program. Hello there. Hello, how are you? I'm great. This is fantastic news for not just citizens of White Rock, but citizens throughout Metro Vancouver who love to come down to the pier. Um, Congratulations on the reopening of this. 
Well, thank you very much. We are absolutely thrilled. We, we debated it on Monday, but uh, we decided that we're in phase two of the BC restart plan and it was time to reopen it. Dr. Bonnie Hendry has been saying we should be letting people access the parks and the beach. And so even though it was a tough decision, we reopened it. And I was down there this morning and walked the entire pier. Beautiful sunny day and people are just overjoyed and the businesses are overjoyed. And uh, biz- White Rock is back open for business. Can you give us a little bit of an idea, if you don't mind, about the social distancing piece with regard to the pier? There's lots of space on that pier, right? Um, actually, it's the biggest one we had the concern. It, it was the one we closed down the first in March, uh, back, mm-hmm. uh, back 11 weeks ago. And it's the last one we're reopening. So, And the reason we're doing that is, well, the promenade and the beaches, it's easy to, to physically distance and keep two meters apart. On the pier, it was a challenge. And uh, and so we noticed that people bunch up at the beginning, at the head of the pier to get a photograph, and then at the at the end, uh, where all the views are. So, so we were very concerned about that in March, and so that was the first thing we did close down. We're hoping uh, with the opening of reopening of the White Rock Pier and a return to normal with parking, we've opened up all the parking. People, we're hoping people will behave responsibly and safely and follow the guidance of our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. If we can do, do we have that, signage up there though. Do we, is we there do. signage have, that says keep the six we, keep the six feet or the two meters? We do. We have one ones from the province and one from the city uh, about physical distancing. We're uh, contemplating also putting stickers uh, to have markers on the pier showing what six uh, two meters looks like, just to make everything clear for everybody. So yeah, everybody, please keep two meters and more from those not in your immediate circle, and be kind and patient with others as we continue through a BC research plan. We are with Scott Christensen, the White Rock Deputy Mayor and City Councillor. And that was sort of my next question is like, are there lines? Is it one way you walk You walk this way out to the end of the pier and then you turn around and you walk down the other side of the pier? Like what we've started to learn to do in grocery stores in, and what have you? Gro- you know what? I go to grocery stores and I love that they do that. We've been debating what to do, what to do with uh, the pier. We've had lots of options that we've discussed, uh, but we haven't actually come to any conclusions. So at this point, I think we're going to put stickers down there showing what distances are. One way would be a really good idea. We haven't uh, uh, closed on that, but uh, it's definitely a really good idea I think we should consider. So uh, we'll be talking about that further. So we're evolving here. Opening it up midweek is a good idea. It's been raining for what feels like forever, and we're staring down some better weather coming as we head towards summer. So certainly giving people the opportunity to have those best practices, as you said, the uh, the advice of our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Some people, however, have found it difficult in public and maybe run into people that don't quite get the social distancing. And then it can make for an uncomfortable exchange. And I think that's where the the be kind, be calm, stay safe mantra comes into play here. And and certainly gathering at a beautiful place like the boardwalk and the pier in White Rock, um, hopefully will be filled with, with happy people. So just to reiterate um, what you said, okay, so the pier's open. The, um, the parking lots will return to regular operation within a week. The boardwalk opened last month, as you mentioned, and the West Beach parking lot will re- remain closed for now right no the west beach is open we've opened everything except the parkade because the parkade oh, we, have, uh, we have problems with the elevators and stuff but what mm. we've also done as a precaution is we've given we've delegated authority to the mayor and if we decide that social distancing and phys- sorry physical distancing very important difference physical mm-hmm. distancing isn't being maintained he has the authority to shut it down immediately so we're going to be monitoring very closely 
I think we're going to have to, we've definitely been thinking about putting up some, um, some sign. Well, we're, we have lots of signs. 20 signs are going to be going up on the pier for physical distancing, but also the, we're contemplating the stickers and how that'll work. You know what? I, I walk all the time at Pacific Spirit Park uh, out at UBC, and they've got these signs sort of randomly placed that, that are two meters apart. And they kind of say, you know, stay to the right and maintain that <laughs> two meter distancing. And there's sort of these gentle reminders uh, for people while they are enjoying the outdoor space, because there might be people that that haven't gotten the message all the way. Uh, I like the idea that, uh, and congratulations to you and the mayor of White Rock for uh, giving people the opportunity to do the right thing and, and conduct themselves in a way that is best practices for everyone, as opposed to starting with significant restrictions as you reopen. I, I think that is definitely to be commended. Well, well thank you. And, and we'll be monitoring it. And you're right. UBC has done some great work in their parks. And, we're, mm-hmm. and we, we could have debated this continually and, and trying to get it perfect, but I think what we've decided is to give people that opportunity, open it up now. People are overjoyed and our businesses are overjoyed, and we'll be monitoring it. And if we have to add some extra uh, signage, we'll definitely be doing that. And so be it. Scott Christensen, White Rock Deputy Mayor and City Councilor, thank you for doing this. Well, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Best practices, get out there, enjoy what is beautiful British Columbia, the White Rock Pier, the Boardwalk, and those businesses. That's a big piece of the puzzle. Also a big piece of the Stanley Park puzzle as that emergency uh, park board meeting goes down tomorrow evening about these plans that feel like they're being rammed through at Stanley Park. Or are you on side with doing the construction on a separated bike lane without public consultation? I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. It would appear that you would like to talk about Stanley Park mid-pandemic, post-pandemic, what it will look like, whether or not cars should be allowed on Park Drive or if there should be a separated bike path and the other lane be designated for trolleys and buses and such. I've got lots of emails, jody at cknw.com. If you aren't into being on the air, I'm getting lots of emails, jody at cknw.com. If you'd like to call in, 604 280-9898 or if you're on your cell phone star 9898 it's a free call Uh, this email is from Christine and Ray Uh, they say sure hope Thursday park board meeting brings some common sense clarity we have a $345 pass for parking within Stanley Park and haven't been able to use it we love the park to drive park and stroll, breathe the ocean air and support the restaurants. During the pandemic, we have been deprived of this and as seniors getting out and about is healthy. Dr. Bonnie says to go out into the park and fresh air, enjoy your socializing and physical distancing outdoors so much easier. Why do they use the pandemic as an excuse? Again, thank you to Christine and Ray for that email. If you'd like to email me, Jody at cknw.com. We've got some time here. Phone board is lit up, 604-280-9898. Let's get to it. Up first is Catherine in White Rock. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Hi, Jody. It's, it's Catherine. Jody, I was born in this great city of Vancouver in 1941, and I remember when we all learned that the Lord Stanley, who was a British lord, uh, owned all that property that we call Stanley Park, and he dedicated it and gave it to the city of Vancouver on the condition that it be for, quote, all people. So I don't know who the blazes these parks board uh, people think that they can get in there and do the damn well please. And I'm mad as a hatter, as you can probably tell. 
Um, if they want to close it up and do whatever it is they want to do for a short time, as long as it is temporary, then I think fair is fair and, and we're all reasonable. But just to go in there and say this is the way it's going to be, then it's going to be a war. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm really mad. So there, there's well, Catherine, what I, I've been I hear you. And- to tell you. <laughs> well, I'm glad you called, and I and I thank you for the history lesson. And that is, uh, it is it is quite something. It is meant for all, as per Lord Stanley. His name is on it, and certainly, as you said, Catherine. Uh, for now, in a pandemic, that's one thing. That's commonsensical. But there was nothing broken in Stanley Park, is is the majority of the feedback we're getting here. Or maybe not. Let's keep going down the phone board. I have no idea what people want to talk about. Linda, you're up next. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Um, the lady from White Truck pretty well stole my thunder there, um, and I did. You can reiterate you know, it though. You go ahead yes, and reiterate yes. it. <laughs> I'm just so like I thought it was federally owned, and how can Vision or Ford just go in there and do what they think is best without consultation? Well, that's just it, Linda, and your phone's cracking up a little bit, so I'll send you back to your radio, but I think what you're saying is the overarching message that is going loudly back to the park board and maybe sparking the reason why the emergency meeting is happening on Thursday evening at 6.30 is that the public are mad at the concept of ramming through something that they have not, we have not as taxpayers, approved to happen in Stanley Park, the domino effect of this, the input or the uh, impact on the businesses like Pros- Prospect Point Restaurant and the Tea House. How do you get to and from, from the cricket field with all of the equipment? How do you how do you have a wedding in in Stanley Park? I got married in Stanley Park, by the way. Uh, it'd be more and more difficult to do. Donna and Maple Ridge, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I called earlier and I left a couple of questions, but I guess you couldn't get to to your guest with them. I was wanting to know if uh, Stanley Park shouldn't be under provincial jurisdiction and, like, not have four or five people in the parks board deciding the future of Stanley Park. Another concern is if there was any kind of a serious accident, fire in the park, any kind of a, a situation that requires fire, police, ambulance, whatever, you know, is it going to be very good if we only have one lane to travel through, or, or, you know, into the park? Yeah, can you imagine the horse-drawn buggy being in the one lane and there's an emergency you know, at a beach that and, needs and, emergency and vehicles? Like, yeah, I you're right. I just don't understand why this parks boards are the end-all, be-all that can make such a decision. I think the people of Vancouver... And actually, the province deserved to have a vote on anything drastically changing in Stanley And typically, Park. you know what, tip, typically that is the case. Thank you very much for the phone call. You're right. And there's some good people. There's some really good people who are working on the park board that have the best of intentions. I think most people do. They're stepping in it here. The, the majority that is voting for this to happen without public consultation is stepping in it and giving the park board a bad name here. Great works have been done by the park board. I mean, saving the conservatory at Queen Elizabeth Park, that would not be there if not for the likes of John Cooper, who went on a crusade to save that. So, I mean, it'd be easy to paint this with one big brush, but it really is the due process that is necessary, specifically around this crown jewel, the number two city park in the world, according to TripAdvisor, is Stanley Park. Stephen Vancouver, you're up next. What are your thoughts on this? Hey, how you doing? Good, you? 
Good, good. I'm an avid cyclist. I, I put on a ton of clicks every month. And I actually went through Stanley Park on Sunday. And, you know, benefit to the weather, it was empty. But either taking cars and vehicles out or even making it a single lane is the stupidest thing this city could ever do. If you go down the list of people that use that park, think about cruise ship passengers who jump, jump on a, a tour bus and go through there. Imagine if it was one lane. Yeah. And they, they had to maneuver a bus through there because I've done that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, I think they've got to come to their senses. Um, the cycling community can be seriously elitist. When I say that, I commend Vancouver for its bike path. It's an easy city to access by bike. But to make Stanley Park cycling only is ludicrous. I appreciate your perspective, Steve. I'm with you. I love to cycle. And and I live near West 8th Avenue where it's a calmed street where cars and, and bikes share the road. And actually, bikes do get a priority. Cars have to, you know, let the cyclists have the right of way. Why not something like that? We, we can be grown-ups about this on Park Drive. It is already 30 kilometers an hour and and even slower when people want to take in the beautiful majesty that is that drive around our jewel of a city, Vancouver. John in Vancouver, you're up next. What do you think on this topic? Hey, Jody. Uh, you know, I take my uh, my wife out for a date night every two weeks. And, Good one, uh, yeah. Well, you know, we got to keep up the romance. That's um, right. You know, we uh, we go all over this, all over Greater Vancouver, and we. Um, it's just getting increasingly harder to go into Vancouver with bike lanes and, and everything else that's happening down there. I'm thinking I might uh, be taking her to White Rock a lot more. They seem mm. to want to be using our, or having our dollars come into their, into their restaurants, whereas Vancouver doesn't really seem to want anybody coming into their city. Well, John, happy wife, happy life. I love your attitude. And White Rock will be happy to have you because the businesses there really want that reopening to happen. Talk to the Tea House Restaurant in Prospect Point about the hit they're taking. Never mind the aquarium that is already, pardon the pun, but underwater financially. Uh, there's a lot to unpack. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. Time to talk international news with a serious Canadian twist as Canada's bid for one of the temporary, two temporary UN Security Council seats uh, has not gone well for Justin Trudeau. Canada, in fact, losing in the first round of voting on uh, acquiring one of those two seats. Norway and Ireland are receiving those. To dig down a little deeper into uh, how the campaign towards this went and what this means, what the seats actually uh, represent. Uh, we're bringing in Matthew Fisher, who is the international affairs columnist for Global News and a Global News commentator. Matthew, thanks for doing this. Well, thank you for having me on. A long road of campaigning here for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, the disappointment must run deep. It will run very deep. You know, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. And I cannot for the life of me, figure out why Canada wanted this uh, temporary seat on the United Nations Security Council. Many, many other people didn't. Nobody thought Canada was qualified for it because it's basically shirked its global responsibilities for a number of years. But the prime minister put his name out there and his, his office said his personal brand 
would win the day. The world would see, as Canadians have seen, uh, what an earnest fellow he is. Well, this is an extremely sharp rebuke. To lose on the first ballot really makes one wonder what was up. Uh, A lot of countries uh, don't buy into this idea that we're the most loved nation in the world. In fact, they kind of think we're skunks. Apparently, they love Norway and Ireland more. Well, they do. And of course, they have better records by far internationally as good citizens than Canada does. Stephen Harper cut peacekeepers. Stephen Harper cut uh, humanitarian aid. Justin Trudeau came in with the slogan, Canada is back. And what did he do? He cut peacekeeping further. He cut foreign aid further. The things that he criticized Stephen Harper for, he doubled down on. And, and so it was preposterous that Canada would get this. And the personal brand of the prime minister, well, in India, for example, which said it did not support Canada's bid, uh, we had the song and dance routine. That did not play well in India. They regarded it as racist and contemptuous of Indian culture and who they are as a great nation. Uh, The prime minister wore blackface at least three times. And uh, he said he was young, but one of those times he was a teacher and he was 29 years old out west in British Columbia. And that has to have been noted by uh, voters in Africa and in, in the Caribbean. We uh, uh, dissed Australia and Japan, two partners of ours, when the prime minister failed to even show up at a meeting uh, of the three leaders. He, he literally, they found out 30 seconds in advance as they were sitting on the dais that the prime minister had decided he didn't want to come because he didn't like the terms of the meeting. All of these things hurt you reputationally tremendously. But the idea was that the prime minister is so revered and loved because he's so sincere about global issues. That would win the day. Oh, my God, Jody, this is a, a really, really big rebuke for him personally. We're with Matthew Fisher, international affairs columnist and global news commentator. Do we have a flawed sort of inflated um, perspective of how we are seen as Canadians on the global stage because of all of what you just said? I think we do, not only because of that, but if you ask your friends and neighbours, and I notice this when I'm out west and I spend quite a bit of time in Western Canada, and, and I notice it among the Laurentian elite, so-called in Quebec and Ontario, uh, that we're a nation of nice guys. You know, peacekeeping is our brand The world loves us. It's kind of a a fuzzy relationship, a a fuzzy relationship of affection for Canada. The reality really is something else. And the world measures you by what you do. And the prime minister talked about how he was going to fight for gender balance, for diversity, uh, cultural issues, issues related to um, uh, lesbian, gay, and transgender issues. These are all important issues. They are issues that should be discussed, and Canada's position on these uh, is very moral. But we have to understand in the motorcycle gang of nations that other countries don't necessarily share our views, nor do they wish to be lectured by Canada about those views. And uh, The Prime Minister said that was what we do, and also the coronavirus. 
He would show global leadership on the uh, coronavirus. Well, if you look at the stats, Canada's showing on the coronavirus is really kind of poor. Uh, Australia has 105 deaths, and Canada has 8,000. What's that about? Mm -hmm. Norway has far, far fewer deaths per capita. They did a much better job. But even in Canada, there is this myth that we have done a great job of controlling this virus. We've not done a bad job, but we're middling. We're not world leaders in this at all. And so we do delude ourselves. You know, the old idea, Jody, when you were younger, when I was younger, of putting a Canadian flag in your backpack and everybody backpack. would love yeah. you because you're not an American. I don't think mm-hmm. it, it passes muster anymore in the world. The world's hard knows there are real problems. Canada wouldn't even express an opinion on the tiff between India and China. Uh, the last few mm. days where people died. Yeah. It's been very reluctant to comment on China because we didn't want to offend them. Well, you don't get far in the world without a principled policy. And frankly, we don't even have a foreign policy. We've never had a review during the election. All the leaders, not just Trudeau, but the other ones, nobody wanted a foreign policy debate, so there wasn't one. Mm, so much food for thought. I could talk to you for an hour, Matthew. Thank you for doing this with us. I really do appreciate your perspective. Oh, I was just getting warmed up there. Well, you can have me back for an hour anytime you want. Okay, well, I'm going to hold you to I, that. I'm joking. Uh, I'm, I we, we got Matthew on speed dial. Oh, no, thank you for this. In- well, hey there, Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week. And uh, very pleased to welcome Richard Zussman, Global News Online journalist based at the legislature on the line with us. Hey, Richard. Hey, Jody. How you doing? Good, thank you. I'm so glad glad that you got moved up the queue in the Q and A session there uh, with the premier and the finance minister. So, so much for us to unpack here. Uh, lots of places I want to bounce with you, but I, I'm not sure what peaked for you the most. But hearing John Horgan say we're getting new modeling next week from Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry that might see us inch closer when, if the data is there to phase three. <laughs> If the data is there. So I think the premier already knows unless we see a big spike in cases over the next few days, the data will be there to move into phase three. And what phase three means for British Columbians really is the double thumbs up, go ahead, travel. And right now, as you know, and the listeners know, hotels are slowly starting to open campgrounds are open but the encouragement still from dr bonnie henry and the province is stay close to home don't travel yet but soon there will be a green light to start traveling so the anticipation is that next week we will hear uh, modeling numbers on monday from dr henry as you mentioned that will once again be positive based on the trends that we have seen and then following that likely either on tuesday or wednesday we will hear from premier horgan likely alongside Dr. Henry saying, you know, let's move towards our BC summer where we focus on traveling within the province, focus on staycations, you know, and what that ultimately means for people as they start booking places. I know from experience and I've heard from a lot of people, it's already getting pretty tough to find a good place to stay this summer in British Columbia. A lot of people are booking ahead. A lot of people are planning their summers, anticipating this decision. So there'll be a lot of questions to government around, what if all these places you want to go are already full? What should you do as a British Columbian to try to enjoy the summer uh, that we're being asked to, to remain here in the province and, and remain relatively close to home? 
Because we have to keep in mind, Richard, of course, that capacity numbers are lower because all of this phase three talk still includes the physical distancing, the, you know, the the being diligent. I really, really resonated with me. The risk is still high. The virus is very much still here in British Columbia. Yes, we've done an incredible job. We've been very successful. We stayed home. We stayed home from school. We took the steps. We took responsibility. These, there were very positive words being used today. However, those, those words of caution as well, that we still need to continue to stick to what has worked to this point. And I know there are many of us who have had conversations about going out in public and having people just being like, it's over. It's like, no, yeah. it's not. We're allowed and to get feel- out a bit, but I need step back two meters. Please. You know, you- you feel that a lot here, Jody, on Vancouver Island, where, you know, I tried to book uh, going to a restaurant. Uh, my mother-in-law just had her 79th birthday and she's living with us. And uh, we haven't left the house really at all. And this was going to be our first excursion out. And we called a restaurant to find out if the servers would be wearing masks or what the protocols were. And they said, well, you know, Vancouver Island is COVID free. You know, we're not wearing any masks. And, you know, again, this is about... We know everyone's not listening to you and I speaking right now. We know not everyone's listening to the Premier and to Dr. Bonnie Henry. But it is about the constant messaging of COVID is all around us. Yes, our numbers are good. Yes, they continue to trend well. But we need to continue to do the things that we have learned. Physical distancing, uh, staying home if we're sick. uh, You know, washing our hands. You know, extra precautions that restaurants have put in place at a high cost to them to keep their staff safe as well as the public safe. So you make a very important point, right? As we start to travel, the things that we go and do are not going to feel and look the same as we experienced them in the past, right? Those favorite restaurants that you may have in Whistler will have half the capacity. You know, your favorite uh, locations in Kelowna, that winery you love to go to, may have Mm. restrictions on the tasting room. So all of those things will factor in to your travel plans. It won't feel like a typical vacation, but it is going to be really important for the economy. You know, the announcement today from the province was they've launched this online survey they want people to take to let them know what you want to see in the recovery. And a big part of that is getting people out and spending money and helping employers bring people back to work. If that's a restaurant, a tourist attraction, a retail location, like these are the industries that have been hit so hard by this. And the next step is about British Columbians, if they can, because I know so many British Columbians have been financially hit hard by this. If they can help, that's going to help drive the economy back and help uh, in some senses bring back some normalcy to the economy. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. I liked when uh, Finance Minister Carol James said that the BC economic uh, outlook right now, we are a leader in Canada and we want to want to keep it that way. I've only got like a minute left here, Richard, but I want to your point about the renters benefit here in British Columbia. You asked the question if it will expire at the end of June. Did you feel that your question was answered? Yeah, it sounds like it will. It sounds like they're not going to extend this program, which will be tough for a lot of renters. The question is, will the province then extend the moratorium on evictions? We just don't know the answer yet. I've asked Selena Robinson about this in the past. They're trying to work something out on this in terms of what it looks like. But clearly, landlords need help. Renters need help. And there's going to be a lot of situations where people are going to owe money. And when this program lifts or all of a sudden they're going to be thrown out on the streets, that would not be very good. So that's something that needs to be addressed. We'll likely hear about that next week when the legislative session returns, Jody, and the excitement continues here in Victoria with the legislature back on Monday. Thank you for doing the juggle for us. As always, Richard, we appreciate you. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jody. Have a great day. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. Once again, U.S. politics, tons to break down, even in just the last 24 hours. Never mind the last couple of hours, to be honest with you. Our global news producer reporter in the U.S. Capitol, Reggie Cicchini, is checking in with us right now. Hey, Reggie. Good afternoon. So I spun the wheel and decided where to start because there's that much to unpack with you today. It is absolutely remarkable watching Twitter roll by and what is trending. But certainly, first and foremost, let's start with the COVID-19 numbers. Uh, Where are we at overall in the U.S. right now? Yeah, so just within the last little while, the U.S. actually surpassed 117,000 when it comes to the number of people who have uh, died from a confirmed case of COVID-19. The problem is the numbers are on the rise, notably in the U.S. south across the Sun Belt, essentially running from Florida all the way to uh, California, where places like Florida and Texas and Arizona are all seeing numbers uh, on the plus side of 25% when it comes to an increase in cases and in one you know, small isolated case here in in uh, Alabama, there are reports that there is a plus 150 percent increase uh, in cases and hospitalization. So this is a, a an extremely um, serious virus that is not releasing its grip on the U.S. Those are terrifying numbers. And we, we know now because we've seen the studies, even in this brief time of being in this pandemic, we get into the doubling of numbers and things just take off and spike. Uh, we did get some intel from Oklahoma officials, uh, the highest numbers ever there. What does that mean for the upcoming Trump rally? What, three days from now in Tulsa? Yeah, it's happening on Saturday, and you're right. The highest numbers uh, reported to date so far in Oklahoma and in Tulsa. And this is going to be problematic for the president's campaign and for their team as they try to pack 20,000 people into uh, the BOK Center in Tulsa for this rally. Uh, you know, we've been told that campaign organizers are going to be handing out masks and, and, and hand sanitizer to the attendees, but there is no uh, uh, guarantee that there's going to be enforcement to ensure that those masks are worn. There's also a concern that there's not going to be any social distancing measures inside that arena when you're packing that many people inside. And it actually led to uh, a lawsuit that was filed by a number of attorneys to try and stop this rally from happening. A judge kind of threw it out the window, but they're now taking it to the state's Supreme Court, simply saying that this is going to be a uh, quote unquote super spreader uh, and Mm -hmm. potentially make a dire situation that much worse. Did I hear uh, Dr. Fauci being quoted about whether or not he was going to attend? Obviously, he said no, but he was actually urging people to self-isolate after if they're going to attend this to try and self-isolate for 14 days after. Yeah, Fauci has said that he wouldn't attend any uh, kind of rally like this because that goes against the task force that's now been sidelined uh, messaging to not be in large clusters of people, uh, especially if you're in an area where the number of cases are on the increase. Dr. Fauci's kind of been uh, vocal on a couple of uh, networks and radio stations since the message is no longer broadcast publicly from the White House, but he's already called this a nightmare. Uh, and he, yes, there have been health officials that said any attendee who goes to this rally needs to get tested before, needs to get tested afterwards, uh, and then needs to put themselves into self-isolation. But unfortunately, the man that they're going to see doesn't really support any of those mitigation efforts. So it's unlikely that we'll see a majority of the people in that room or in that stadium uh, practice any of those uh, 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 cautions that are being sent to them. Well, it's unbelievable. Highly unlikely that they would, given the uh, op-ed piece penned by Vice President Mike Pence. It's in reading it, it was it came across as downright dangerous. 
Well, I mean, look, it's it's dangerous and it was factually incorrect. It was riddled with cherry picked facts that uh, make the administration look uh, like it did a better job at handling this coronavirus outbreak from the very beginning. Uh, what is the most dangerous part of this is Mike Pence saying that the media has turned this into fear mongering uh, when what the media is doing is presenting the facts that are wrong from the White House and juxtaposing those with the facts that are obvious and correct from science or at least from the facts that are understood at the time which we know can change as the weeks go on. But we also know that the vice president saying that a second conversations about a second wave being overblown are also simply just inappropriate because, yes, maybe talk of a second wave has been uh, a little bit overdone in the United States, but it's because we don't know about a second wave because we're not out of the first wave in the United mm -hmm. States yet. Yeah, and needing to learn from the first wave and how to mitigate and control and contain a possible second wave that would happen during flu season. It's a, just a bigger conversation than what seems to be reflective from those uh, in the current administration there. Let's pivot here, if you don't mind, Reggie, a couple of books coming out and one causing, uh, well, an NDA and perhaps some some suing on the sidelines from a familial standpoint. But there's a downright throwdown battle brewing between Donald Trump and uh, his former, um, what, hawk? In, in Bolton in his upcoming book. Yeah, look, this is causing a lot of stir in Washington right now, and it has a lot of people in the White House on edge, notably the president, uh, the former national security advisor, the third national security advisor of the Trump administration, penning this book that the Trump administration is actively trying to stop from making its way to the shelves, which likely not going to happen since half of it has been released already. There's an interview coming up on ABC, and uh, it's going to be in stores next Tuesday. Uh, but there are a lot of moments in this in this book that uh, would make anybody scratch their head, but notably what is being being discussed in this book, uh, you know, our, our visions that John Bolton has being a hawk when it comes to places like North Korea and China uh, and Iran, but the conversations that he has kind of uh, uh, discussed about the president and China's leader, Xi Jinping, and trying to use China to get him reelected again, trying to have conversations saying that, uh, you know, he wants to or would like to see a constitutional change that would allow him to have a longer term in office to be able to deal with China. Uh, these are questions that raise serious concerns that what is the president saying behind a closed door to these uh, dictators and, and other world leaders? And what are the damaging impacts that that is going to have long term on U.S. relations with that country and other countries around the world? So the book comes out on Tuesday. The book comes out on Tuesday. I mean, it's going to be a, a tough fight if the president wants to try and claw back that date. Uh, worth noting here, the president uh, and teams inside the White House and, uh, uh, you know, part of national security, they've had copies of this book for weeks and weeks and weeks and decided not to do anything about it. Uh, so it would be hard for any kind of judge to take the information and say, well, I guess we should put an injunction in place uh, when the information has been sitting in people's hands for weeks. I just want to bring this up. It's, it's, it's one of those moments of timing in this book that John Bolton and is writing, uh, the president uh, is apparently in a conversation with China's leader about uh, Uyghur uh, camps, uh, re-education camps, and the president makes a note of saying, according to Bolton, that that's what they deserve and they should be in those camps. The president today signed uh, an order uh, calling for freedom uh, of Uyghurs in the western part of China. So, I mean, timing is everything here, trying mm. to get himself ahead of that book. Interesting. What about the other book that is Nisa's penned? Uh, that book, I, I'm not familiar uh, with uh, with any other book that's coming out um, outside it's of this Bolton one. It, 
I heard about it when looking up the Bolton stuff after you uh, pointed me in that direction. I saw that Mary Trump's written a book of how our family created this dangerous monster. Uh, and apparently it, she had signed an NDA years ago, but that Donald Trump has come forward and said, you know, everything she's saying is is under you know confidentiality or whatever, which basically says what she's saying is true. But they've delayed that book till after November the 3rd, apparently. So we'll do a little digging around and maybe have some more on whether or not that is uh, substantiated or if it's just sort of skipping along the the surface when we check in with you tomorrow, Reggie. I'm going to pause here for a quick break because on the other side, we got big numbers out today uh, in terms of polling, Trump versus Biden. Jody and for Jill, continuing on checking in with Chikini, Reggie Chikini, our Global News Washington correspondent. And Reggie, uh, big numbers out today, polling wise, and big news of a new super PAC trying to turn some Republicans to Biden. Do explain. Yeah, I mean, we starting with those numbers. Uh, this kind of is a uh, tag along to those numbers that we saw from CNN that really upset the Trump administration and the president himself when he tried to go after CNN uh, for an apology. Uh, but these numbers from Reuters and Ipsos show that there is a, a kind of growing divide uh, between those who used to like the president uh, and may not be on his side anymore, uh, with the poll showing that Biden has a 13-point advantage over President Trump, uh, with registered voters saying that they would vote 48 uh, percent, registered voters saying uh, for Biden, 35 percent uh, for Donald Trump. What it also shows is that the president's disapproval rating is 57 uh, percent right now. That is a huge number. It's a massive uptick from where the president has been uh, as of late. The one thing that always needs to be discussed, though, with polls is that oftentimes they can be wrong or they can be misleading. We saw that in 2016. Uh, and these are all national polls that are being done, state level polls. Polls are the ones that could uh, make it seem like the president's numbers aren't so dire right now. And that's where a lot of the pollsters are trying to get their acts in gear is to talk to those people that are inside a state to actually see what's going on. But nationally right now, it is still a big game and a big lead for Joe Biden. It's really quite something when talking about those polls and certainly that CNN poll, the, the rigmarole around that and the whole we're going to sue you for polling people that aren't even necessarily voters, just adults. Like it was just watching that exchange with the Trump lawyer was just another sparkly thing in all of this. But we certainly can learn from 2016. And and hopefully it doesn't have Democrats feeling a little unnerved because if people stay home thinking there's no way he can win again, uh, the United States ends up with similar results as 2016. But then there appears to be a super PAC trying to ensure that that doesn't happen because some of the Republicans are done with Donald Trump. Yeah, and this goes to show that there is a, a massive fracture forming within the Republican Party right now, and it's so split to the point that you're seeing Republicans now veer center of left or left of center to try and go towards the Democrats. There are two, a pair uh, of these right-wing or at least right-sided uh, political action campaigns. One of them uh, is uh, being led in part by Kellyanne Conway, the counselor to the president's husband. Uh, the second one is being led by former uh, uh, alum of the Trump administration and of the George George W. Bush administration, uh, and it is actively trying to pull members from the GOP into the Biden campaign, or at least into the Biden side, to vote for him in November. This this is 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 almost unheard of to try and, and yeah. see somebody who is a Republican trying to actively get people to vote for the Democrat uh, in this election. It, 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 there, there is a fracture in this country. The president has made that gap incredibly wide, uh, and he could ultimately pay the price from it from not being able to unify his own party.
So just so we know, because some in Canada don't really understand what a what a PAC is all about. These are the people that will will ring those phones and go into the swing states and put out the banners and and try and rally the people to to vote for their candidate. And it would just be absolutely unheard of for a group, a large group of notable Republicans to actively campaign for the Demo- Democratic nominee. Yeah, they 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 garner a lot of uh, attention and they dump serious amounts of money into mm. states, typically for uh, either a president or for uh, kind of an electoral hopeful, either at the state uh, or or house level. Uh, and one of these packs, you know, they're they're set to target voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania. These are battleground states that the president needs to win some of them if he wants to have any kind of chance at a second term. And with that kind of money being spent from Republicans in these states. This could be a huge boost for Joe Biden tacked on to the Lincoln Project, which is also doing uh, a similar uh, uh, ad campaign by to go against the president. This is going to be uh, an arduous journey for the president over the next couple of months. That Lincoln Project, I've been following them on Twitter for quite some time. That's the George Conway, the Kellyanne Conway's husband's project, right? It is. Yeah. And he's a vocal critic yeah. of the president. He makes no, uh, you know, no hidden facts about that on Twitter. Uh, and, and he is a voice that is a respected, but be uh, heard across the Republican Party and they can have uh, definite sway, possibly not amongst the uh, the non-educated uh, uh, parts of the Republican Party that the president's base is oftentimes made up of. But he can go after the educated Republican and try to pull them over to their side fascinating stuff thank you for doing this reggie as always we had a lot to unpack we'll check in with you tomorrow thank you always enjoy checking in with chikini by the way i did have the opportunity to watch uh, reggie's story about uh, the importance of a ruling to come down on uh, children within the foster system or those uh, up for adoption and lgbtq2 plus people in the united states wanting to adopt kids I highly recommend you go to globalnews.ca and and Google that or search that uh, on our platform. It is uh, quite the story.